guru-focused, growth-minded, and culturally driven. These are just some of the words that I took away from my conversation with Charlie Jordan. Charlie is a stalwart in our industry who has been helping families reach their financial goals for nearly 18 years. And for the past 11 years, Charlie has been with Brightworth, a multi-billion dollar RIA here in Atlanta. Charlie is now a partner with Brightworth, which is a firm that is consistently growing and innovating both on the technology front along with the internal cultural and process front. Brightworth is a firm I've known for years and have always admired the way they do business and have been able to grow. And today, we get to go under the hood with this successful firm to understand what drives the success they have and will continue to have going forward. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Charlie, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we, we've already done some talking about yeah. what we're going to talk about, which is exciting. And, um, you know, uh, to help the listeners get to know you a little bit, I always like to get some interesting facts. And <laughs> I learned some things out of this as well. Uh, so tell us, you had you graduated from Florida. I'm not going to hold right. that against no, you. All right? all right. I'm not going to hold that against you. Uh, but you started your uh, career actually as an athlete playing football at, the, at Houston. I did. I did. I played middle linebacker for University of Houston. Um, I was there for two years. I won't get into the whole story of how that went down and why it ended up at Florida, but uh, needless to say, it was a great experience and uh, learned a lot um, about myself, being a Florida kid, going out to Texas and and playing a great game. Got to play in some really cool places like in Rose Bowl Stadium against UCLA. Um, got to play in um, Legion Field in Alabama. So uh, my first game was actually Tiger Stadium, LSU at night, first game of the year and uh, opening kickoff team. So it was how Pretty was cool that? experience. Um, it was uh, very loud, but it was sort of an out-of-body experience. Uh, I think I ran a 4.740, which doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but I probably ran a 4.4 on that opening kickoff. I was heading down, and uh, Kevin Falk was the reti- uh, return man, <laughs> and he gave me one side step, and I ran right by him and missed the tackle completely. So that was, you were just that trying was to the get opening your of up. my uh, college career. Yeah. <laughs> so now if Houston plays Florida, who are you going for? Oh, I'm a Florida guy, true okay. and true. All right. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. A damn mole in Florida guy. Go and, Gators. <laughs> uh, uh, again, I'm not going to hold that against That's you. That's all right. Uh, but, uh, so, and also, you swam with some, uh, some interesting creatures in Costa Rica. <laughs> Tell us about that as well. This was a trip uh, back in 2002. Uh, my wife's grandmother took the entire family, so 17 of us down to Costa Rica, and uh, this was her estate plan, which was, I'm going to spend money and do it with you, and we're going to have a good time together. And uh, so we went down to Costa Rica. Our last day there, we had a sailboat excursion. We went out, and suddenly we saw whales out in the distance and ended up getting close to them. And I believe it was my wife's uncle said, hey, we have the snorkeling gear. Let's get in the dinghy, get out ahead of them, and, and see what we can do. And we did that about five times where we got out of the boat, got in the water, they swam underneath us. Um, one of those kind of moments that in hindsight is pretty insane. <laughs> uh, all the villagers the next day were talking about these crazy Americans swimming with the dolphins, but they were so slow and docile that the danger kind of melted away. But um, how, how close did y'all get to? I mean, were you probably about 10 feet over them? Cause when they would come over, come close to us, they would dive underneath us and uh, we'd watch them swim underneath and, come back up, get in the boat, go out ahead of them, do it all again until we were worn out. That is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. And uh, speaking of traveling with the right family, that's a high school sweetheart. That's, I mean, yeah. I, I that, you don't hear that as much anymore. I don't know why. Maybe I just don't ask people, but yeah. that's a that's a good feat. So that's, that's going on a good number of years. I mean, you're only, what, 25, right? So oh, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. We actually celebrate <laughs> 20 years next year. 20 years. Congratulations. Uh, known each other for a long time. And uh, that's one of those things where it's a unique fact because you don't hear it very often right. anymore. So uh, my best friend has been that way for a long time and three beautiful daughters and uh Life is good. That's awesome. And y'all y'all living in where I grew up. So uh, not the same house, but the same area. <laughs> right. uh, so that's awesome. Well, let's get into it. I'm really excited. Um, and I, as I've said before, you know, Brightworth is one of those firms that I've always admired, thought, thought highly of. And mm-hmm. uh, it's always good to be able to, and we've had these conversations before. Sure. And, and we've always had good ones about the future of the, the industry. And I think we're aligned in a lot of ways. Um, and I'd love to kind of start out just simple, right? Sure. And just get your kind of, 
state of the union, right, of the industry, where we sit today. You all see a lot of firms and you see the business from a, from a different perspective. So what is your state of the union that you would give kind of sure. state of the industry? Well, we're seeing a huge generational shift, first of all, uh, just in the leadership and the ownership of firms. And I'm specifically talking about the RIA space, uh, but you look at the Gen 1 to Gen 2 uh, transition is taking place. There's a lot of talk about the transition of wealth that's going to take place, but mm-hmm. the same thing's happening in our industry. So mm-hmm. we're seeing that. Um, I say, I think the other part is this, what I call the battle for the value proposition. So it's whether you want to talk about fee compression or what we're going to do for clients, what services we're going to offer for clients, uh, where do we go to help our clients and provide the most value to justify our fee? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big conversation that's taking place right now. Uh, the other is, and this may be even more specific to the fee-only space, but uh, I believe it was Michael Kitsis uh, referred to the uh, rise of the employee advisor. And so you think about our generation is really the first one that came into an RI business as an employee. Mm-hmm. Most of them were started by someone who came out of the brokerage world or out of the insurance industry, started a business, grew a business, and then hired people like us to mm-hmm. come in. And we are a technically proficient, do our jobs incredibly well. Uh, We're uh, raised on the planning side of the business. And technically, we have a high level of competency where maybe the first generation had to come in and learn sort of that side of our business. Mm -hmm. We're having to actually go back and learn how to tell people about what we do. Right. And I think that's a huge trend you're seeing in our industry. You'll hear it talked about as organic growth. But what it really is, is how do we teach the next generation, our generation and even beyond, who have not had the training necessarily on the sales side or the necessity to come in and create a business and teach them how to sell, which has been a almost a dirty word in the fee-only space, especially. I want to touch on each th- each of those, right? The the generational shift in RAs, the uh, the value prop in selling, and the the I want to start from the top because you know I'm in a firm where it is generational, right? Dad mm-hmm. started the firm, sons are in the firm, right? Right, and and there's that generational shift, and that goes to you know your last point as well on the sales side is your know, dad was a sell salesman. Right. When he started the firm 25 right. years ago, he was a salesman mm-hmm. and people loved him because of that. You you put him in an investment committee meeting these days and it's like way like we have such highly technical analysts that are running the investment side right. that he has to learn that side, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. And that is such a shift now because now getting into the value prop, right, is that's a, you have to be able to show more value than just investment management. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so um, – Let's start there then, actually, sure. on the value side, sure. right? How are firms going to just show value, right? Because investment management in my, is commoditized. In financial planning, many people are doing that, and right. almost everybody. Over the next 10 years, we're going to have to show value differently. And so, first off, advisors, as we talked about, have, don't have an ability of showing. They don't know how to explain value, but right. what is the value, and how are we going to get advisors? How should advisors be able to explain that value? Sure, sure. It almost seems cliche to say, but I do believe the relational side is is where the value is going to lie. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, the investment solution itself is something that's already become commoditized. Um, and this even gets into the how do we charge for our work and everything else as part of that conversation. You're seeing unbundling taking place in Take, for example, the whole uh, media world. You know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. I don't want to pay for the big cable package anymore. And so we're seeing this unbundling of, you know, I have to get 200 channels to get the three I really want. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's going to happen with the investment solution in many ways in our business. And our business was created on the investment solution and you having, the, you having a better investment solution than I do. Mm-hmm. And we both say the same thing. And... The, the relationship, the reason I say it's cliched is because people talk about it all the time. But selling relationship can also be hard in a culture where people are becoming more and more isolated as well. So I don't necessarily have all the answers right. for, the, for how we're going to address this value proposition problem. But I will say that it, the relationship can only go well with time. You can only build a relationship if you spend the time doing it. Right. You can't do it fully virtually. 
You can't do it by simply uh, adding another name to your list and saying, I have another client. We have a great relationship. We all know that that's not going to work. So Mm -hmm. we have to spend time, which means we have to leverage our time better, which is where ultimately when we come back to technology, that's where I think it helps advisors because they can say, my value proposition is to help you make decisions and to know you. And Mm -hmm. to do that well, I need to spend time with you. Now, I want to spend time with you in the way you want me to. Mm-hmm. So, Whether it's you drive down to our you know, office in Buckhead or we're doing it over Skype or I'm doing it in your home, there's ways that we can make sure we build that relationship. That's where the value is going to be added. Mm-hmm. I don't want to discount the expertise, though, because I think what happens in our industry is we talk about what needs to be fixed. And so it becomes this binary conversation. And so we don't need to f- focus on technical and just focus on relationships. Or analytical. No, no. That's how we look at things, A or B. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And at the end of the day, the clients want to know that you do know what you're talking about and that you will get things done. Mm-hmm. But they also want to know that you do care about what's going on in their lives and that you can help them in those. And that's where I think even the value-added services that we're all having to take a look at. Mm-hmm. What services are we going to have to provide our clients 10, 20 years from now that aren't even on our radar right now? Mm-hmm. They're not even things that we even think about. Mm-hmm. That's that's part of the value proposition conversation, I think. And I think in, in going down that path of what you're saying, right, the value goes beyond an annual meeting or a quarterly meeting where you spend two hours with them, right? That's not value where you're just going over the report and you're showing them the whole market data. Because as is, as is the case in many firms, and I've seen it firsthand, is that the client goes home and they're like, I don't even know what the heck they were talking about, yeah. right? And, and I love this, you know, the story that you were talking about, uh, we were talking about before we got on mm-hmm. is, you know, and this goes to kind of the sales side, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, you know, going out and seeing the client, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you can't do that all the time, which is why we need technology because we need right. to make sure we're monitoring our other clients effectively and such. But, you know, what is it? How do you live in the moment with the client? That is developing a relationship and a value that's unique and differentiated. Absolutely. And so, you know, I'd love to kind of talk through that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what was that example that we were talking about there? Uh, and and how does that then also play into how we have to be better at salesmanship? Sure, sure. You, looking just at the experience I was having with my clients, um, I felt like when I went through and analyzed some of the relationships, some of my strongest relationships were those who lived out of town. Mm. And that seems counterintuitive, but it was the ones where I was getting on an airplane and I was going out. And because I was taking the time to get on an airplane and the expense to go see them, it wasn't just show up for an hour or two and then go home. Mm-hmm. We you would do it. At least we'd go to dinner. We'd spend time together. In many cases, I'd stay in their home. They got to host me. And breaking bread together, staying in someone's home, going to events together while you're there, that's the kind of stuff that's just really enriching. And I started realizing, wow, I'm, I have some really strong relationships with these folks who live, you know, three hour plane ride away versus folks who live in town. Not that they weren't rich, but I felt like there was so much more there because of the sheer amount of time I was spending with them, mm-hmm. which always just leads to, well, goodness, how do I do that? I, I already feel like yeah. I have a capacity problem managing my time, etc. Hopefully this is where when you analyze your time, you say, what can I take away from what I'm doing right now? And where can technology help me with that? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if you if you think about the the how the relationship works between an advisor and their client, mm-hmm. it's actually flipped backwards yeah. in, in all essence. Right. Yeah. Because we're telling them, go sit in your car for an hour and sit in traffic, come down and see us, mm-hmm. find a parking spot, come up and sit and you know, feel uncomfortable by sitting in our office and then go home mm-hmm. and we're going to stay here. Uh, and, and so as much as we say it's a relationship business, you know, in theory it is, we should be meeting them out. Maybe it's not at their house, but it's at a coffee shop, but we're meeting them in their environment, letting them feel comfortable and us showing the work. And then it gets to the point that you better figure out how to be scalable and efficient in order to be able to do that for at least a manageable amount of clients from that standpoint. Um, Switching gears just a second is regarding innovation, right? Y'all are an innovative firm and, um, I guess for you, for Brightworth, what's been the leading driver behind the the focus and the need of committing to innovation inside your firm, both within processes and also technology? Going from 30 people approximately three years ago to about 71 today, Mm -hmm. uh, that will drive the need to reevaluate what you're doing. Because when when you're a smaller company, 
Uh, and when I joined Brightworth, I believe I was employee 18. Uh, when, you, when you have a smaller group, there's a lot of player coaching going on. You know, everyone has a different role. They're an advisor, but they also do other parts of the business. Um, and our technology, it was seen more as a cost. Mm-hmm. It wasn't seen quite as an investment in our future. It was considered, okay, we have to do certain things well. What's the cost for that? It was just part of the uh, business process. It wasn't necessarily how are we going to revolutionize our experiences mm-hmm. as a company. And so I think a couple of things happened. Our growth drove the necessity for that. Uh, the other was a focus on a balance between the client experience, which has become a real hot topic. But we also wanted to balance that with the employee experience, also balanced with what I'll call the business experience. Yeah. And we actually have a client experience task force that meets on a regular basis. And our job is kind of the customer advocacy group for our clients. Now, I mean, it's a little self-serving because we're we're also <laughs> the people providing the service. But what we're trying to do is every time we make a decision on process or something internal, we're looking at it and saying, is this the best client experience? But we're trying to balance that out also with the employee experience. So I give an example to our team. If, if I said every time a client comes to our office, our client service administrator is going to go downstairs and they're going to detail their car. That's an incredible client experience. I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. And if we stopped right there, I'm sure there's a lot of advice that that's a great idea. We <laughs> ought to offer that. What a great value proposition, right? The horrible employee experience. <laughs> and it's probably a very bad business experience too. That's probably not good for your bottom line that you have a, a full-time employee detailing cars. Uh, but what we're trying to do is balance all these things out. And, and um, I get I, two points. First, client experience. When you hear client experience, what does that mean to you and to Brightworth? Because it means so much to different people, right? Some people, well, I'm not going to lead you down sure. that path, but what does it mean to you all at Brightworth when you say client experience? Well, what we're trying to do best we can is put ourselves in the shoes of our clients from the moment that we schedule a meeting with them. And this obviously goes back even to sort of the prospecting phase and how they learn about us and everything else. But I want to focus specifically on the client experience. So it's time for your annual update. Mm-hmm. And so what does that process feel like from you know, an assistant reaching out and scheduling the meeting to requesting information for updates to preparing for mm-hmm. the meeting to you driving up to our office, to the valet, to the elevator experience, to the other people in the building, and even when you first come into our office. So we try to go through and map out sort of what is the life of our client look like? Mm -hmm. It's that empathy side of it. Uh, The next phase of it, though, is actually ask our clients, what do you want? Hmm. We're getting better at that. And that's something that we've done in a uh, more random fashion that we're actually trying to put more um, structure around Mm -hmm. uh, going forward. But this, this gets into what we were talking about earlier. We just make assumptions and we have our own agenda. We're even starting every meeting now with what do you want to talk about? What would make this time most valuable for you? Very rarely is it, I want to see comparative performance of each aspect of my portfolio over multiple timeframes. Shocker. That's just not what's on their mind. Now, many of them will say something. I'd like to see kind of how things have gone. In some ways, you almost feel that it's almost obligatory. Like they feel like they're supposed to say that. Right. But when you really dig into it, most people want to know, is there something I'm missing? Is there some decision I need to make? Um, How am I? Am I okay? Um, A lot of them have the, how am I compared to others that are like me? They have that conversation. But it's usually something going on in their life or something they're anticipating in their life, and they want to talk about it. And so this gets into the client experience is, is Part of it for us is teaching our people to break free of those just sort of preordained agendas of what I want to talk about as an advisor and add value by saying, what do you want to talk about? How can I help you and what's on your mind? Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some fear that they have that's 
really bothering them and creating anxiety and just a simple conversation around listing that out, showing how uh, likely that is and how much control you have over it will alleviate that fear and they'll leave feeling a lot better about that conversation. That was an experience. Mm -hmm. The experience wasn't the rate of return. My best meetings, my best meetings that I, if I could rank my best meetings, very rarely, actually in the top five, none of them talked about investment performance. It was like mapping out their situation. They walked out there like, I am so clear yeah. that now I can go do this right now. That's what it's about. And and I and I kind of, and you they may have heard it on the podcast, I kind of smirked when you said, you know, we, we just ask our clients, what do they want? Like the simplest of things is just, and we as advisors are, I think sometimes so concerned about asking our clients because we don't want to hear something like we don't want to stir the pot to where they now start thinking like am i right is this the right experience with me but in reality if you make this a partnership where you're getting insight and you're showing them that you're taking their insight and actually growing based on what they're saying you've now created a stronger relationship that's a stickier relationship that that person feels more committed Mm -hmm. because they had a say. It's just like when you're growing employees, right? Right. Give them ownership into something. Let them grow. They're going to be committed to that firm. It's their plan. It's not your plan, by the way. Exactly. It's their plan. It's their life. You have to provide guidance. And there's some times where you do have to take control of that agenda and say, we do have to talk about something. Mm -hmm. And, And it's usually where you have kept your promise to say, when I need to raise the red flag, I'm going to. Yep. And sometimes you have to do that, and that's what they're paying you to do. But oftentimes, the conversation is, am I okay? Am I about to do something dumb that I shouldn't do, and I need you to help me keep from making that decision? And I'm anticipating this change of life out here. Mm-hmm. How, how, do I, how do I think about that? And you as an advisor, one of the greatest values you can add is just the anecdotal wisdom you have from all the clients you work with. I can say, well, I don't know how this is going to work out, but let me tell you how the last 10 clients who have faced the same exact thing experienced this. And you having that as a sort of barometer to help your clients, that's part of the client experience as well. There's one other piece that I think has become, I would think, transformative in how we work with our clients is really preaching the team concept. Hmm. Advisors, you know, we're a lot of them were, were type A people. We we do see ourselves as somewhat the hero. I mean, that's there's there's some that's of that fair. that happens. And uh, when we're preaching this idea that there's three or four people that you can talk to at any time if you need something, that's a huge, I think, comfort for our clients. And I, I'm pretty upfront with my clients when, we, when they first join our firm. I say, look, I'm very rarely sitting by my phone waiting on you to call. Mm-hmm. I'm in meetings just like this all day long, having these kind of conversations all day long, trying to figure out how to do this better for our clients all day. I will get back in touch with you, but I also want to let you know these three people who you not only know and gotten to know through the process, they're always available for you as well. Mm -hmm. And very unlikely that one of the four of us is not available to help you if you had something going on. Mm -hmm. We will get with you. We will make sure you're taken care of. And the different uh, parts of our team, whether it's the advisor, the planner, the relationship manager, or the executive assistant, they all see that client conversation differently. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we're really trying to do is make sure that the entire team is meeting with the client, maybe not every meeting, but they're spending time with the client too, so they know them. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing the conversations our relationship managers, which would be kind of a CSA for a lot of other firms, they have different conversations than I do because it's, it's a different type of relationship, but it's, it's a fuller mm-hmm. relationship for our firm. But it's deep, it, but it's not, it's, I think that what advisors, <clears throat> if I had to put a finger on it, the advisors feel ownership in each relationship. So most of the time as well, they should, they, right. This is my relationship. Right. And sometimes with ownership, they also say, I don't want anybody else to screw it up. But what we have to get to as an industry is we have to be okay. And I, I've started to see more firms move in this team mm-hmm. approach because the relationship or the conversation, whether it's the one that you would have with the client or not, if the CSA or the relationship manager is having that, 
that's deepening the relationship and they're learning about and that person on the other side the client's learning about your firm in a right. different way right. and there's value there's extreme value to that mm-hmm. and um i think that we have to get over that hump and i think that you know is is in line with y'all's culture right as a firm which is right. a, is what we've talked about is a true differentiator in the sense of how y'all build your firm and build your people and interact with your clients right um from that standpoint mm-hmm. and, and um you know, I, I, I think that from a cultural standpoint, advisors have to be okay with that, right? We have to figure out right. how we can expand and get better interactions with our clients, no matter who's having the interactions, and know that it's all of us together from that Absolutely. standpoint. Absolutely. Well, if you're an advisor and you're trying to do everything, guess what? You're not doing business development. Mm-hmm. You're not spending the time doing sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's part of the problem, too. So you have to rely on good people. The art of delegation is truly an art. And that's been a big part of what I would consider my development was learning how to let go of some things, learning that, you know, it's going to be okay if it's not done exactly like I did it. Mm -hmm. It's going to be okay if they don't say something exactly how I would say it. And not only is is it okay, it's oftentimes better and richer because it is different. Mm -hmm. And they do hear something different. Absolutely. What, what led to you? I mean, I just this goes. We're going a little bit off, but sure. I, because I think that that's something that's really powerful, right? That self awareness of understanding yourself and being able to grow yourself as well. I mean, if you could pinpoint what was that moment where you're like, you know what, I need to let go a little bit and and be okay with that. It actually happened, um, and, I, and I give a, a lot of credit to uh, my assistant Esther, who came to me one day and said do you want me to lose my job? I went, no, not at all. She's like, well, then let me do my job. And, hmm. and part of that gets into the culture we have at Brightworth where we do have organizational structure, but relationally we're flat. Hmm. And so she had the ability to come in there and call me to that and say, you're not letting go of things. You're not allowing me to do my job well. And I remember always saying, I don't want to be that person because I was micromanaged before in my career. I'm sure everyone here could probably relate to that. And I didn't want to be that. And yet I had turned into it because I didn't know how to delegate. I didn't know how to do it. And it is a discipline, is is a art, and you have to learn by doing it. But once you let go of some things, even if it doesn't work out great. It's a learning opportunity. It's a it's a great opportunity for the relationship as well. And you build off of that. And I think that's what happened for me is when I first had an assistant, I got called to account. Mm -hmm. And because we had the culture that allowed that to happen, I think I became a better delegator as a result. That's amazing. I, I think that, yeah, I, I, the, the impact of, I think that that's something that, you know, our leaders in our firms have always strived to do is be more self-aware and be mm-hmm. open to that and, and accept feedback and learn from that. And right. again, it goes to just asking the client what they want to do, ask your employees and the people that work with you right. what they want to do and take that in. I want to, I, I want to take a few more minutes here before getting to buy, sell, and I want to go down the technology path. Sure. Um, so technology, um, how do y'all go about analyzing your technologies and your tech stack to make sure that you're using it in the most efficient way possible? Because I think that that's what uh, advisors struggle with. We're not technologists. Right. How, do, how, how am I supposed to understand whether yeah. this is the right or wrong technology? And so how do you all look at it from your firm side of going about that? You know, this is it's an interesting topic because I would imagine most advisors feel like they're woefully behind. Mm-hmm. Even if they are an early adopter and they feel like they have a great stack, I would imagine just based upon what they might read and what they might hear that I'm way behind, I'm doing this all wrong, and we certainly have felt that way. We are certainly not early adopters. That mm-hmm. is not the way we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, We've had a lot of trial and error over the years. Um, I think what's happened for us is learning that we need to go slow to go fast. We we used to make decisions, I think, around technology on, oh, well, this is a great piece of software here that accomplishes this goal. Great, let's go do that. Mm-hmm. Now that there is something like integrations that actually are meaningful and APIs and all those things are actually useful and meaningful, 
we're wanting to really take a step back. So because of our growth through some acquisitions we've done and just internal organic growth, we've gotten to the point now where we're having to really reevaluate everything we're doing to mm-hmm. say, okay, what got us here won't get us there. Does this system work? Does this system work? But instead of making those in a vacuum, we're really going through and looking at the entire picture and saying, yes, we want to analyze our CRM, but how do we want to think about data? Mm-hmm. We need to be a data company. Mm-hmm. And so where does data flow and how does that work? And then what CRM is going to help us do that best with our planning software, with our portfolio management software, with all the other pieces of our tech stack? And how do we do this to both, again, balance the client experience, balance the employee experience, and make us as profitable as we can in the midst of all of that? Mm-hmm. And that's how we're analyzing it. And it's a slow, painful process. And I was one of those guys that when I wasn't in management, Mm -hmm. I was always on the outside looking in going, we're so slow. Like there's all these things we could be doing. Look at all this cool stuff. All these groups are doing what I realized. Most of those were, you know, one advisor firms. Yeah. We have complete autonomy over how they want to go about changing their technology around. They don't have to get buy-in. They don't have to create a, um, a training mechanism and a uh, infrastructure that'll actually adopt the, the, you know, the, the platform. It's a very different process when you have 71 people. Yeah. Yeah. And as I've transitioned into the leadership of our firm, I've seen the consequences of making quick decisions on things that may or may not necessarily be what's best for our entire system and may be very expensive Mm -hmm. in the process. So we're trying not to make expensive knee jerk reactions in technology right now, but really take the time to think through how do we want to use data mm-hmm. and how we want to make the jobs of our people as efficient and good as possible. Right. We want people to actually have a good work life right? and using technology to do that. And how do we make sure we're also providing the best client experience through technology we can? How do you determine the ROI on technology investments? I know that's a loaded it's a question, good question, right? Because that's, I think, the... Uh, and I think wrongfully, uh, wrongfully, I, I think advisors try to put an ROI on technology, of course. right? And and it may not be, an, and I think wrongfully they put a numerical ROI, mm-hmm. right? That's the challenge. So how do y'all look at ROI on the technology, and and how do you make sure and ensure that you're always analyzing that you're going towards whatever that goal of what you adopted the specific, sure. specific technology for? There's a um there's a gentleman in our industry that's more of a consultant guru, Mitch Anthony, um, mm-hmm. and he has a concept called return on life. He says, so we, we need to remove, move from return on investment to return on life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's far off for this conversation. So can I determine how many new clients I'm going to gain by adding a new CRM? Of course not. But what is my return on life? So if I have a CRM that's actually really functional and allows me to do my job better, I'm probably going to enjoy my work a little bit more. Mm-hmm. If my client service team has processes and technology in place that allows them to do their job better and take some of their headaches away while also serving the clients really well, that was a return on life. Mm. May not see the investment side and the numerical side, and hopefully the clients feel the same way. If we have a, a technology tool that they're utilizing that's actually helping them in the managing their financial life, that was a return on life, not necessarily a return on investment. So that's kind of, and, and it may not know for several years whether that, that's the right uh, option or not. But I will say from our client's perspective, there's very few technology pieces that we've instituted, whether it's you know, a vault system or a, you know, part of the online planning package through eMoney or something along those lines where they've balked at it and said, mm-hmm. no, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And clients, I think, will adopt things oftentimes maybe quicker than our internal staff might do. Right. Well, I, uh, I, well to that point, I think that the pro- I think that advisors are keeping from innovation with new technologies. Innovation, I think, means on processes and technology is just a piece of innovation. But they keep from the technological aspect because they're like, oh, my clients don't want this. My client, my clients don't FaceTime, right? My clients yeah. don't text. They don't. And I think that's just because they're worried about inter- or, uh, implementing something new and having the client rethink again, rethink the relationship. Whereas if they were just to ask their client, their client probably would say, yeah, I'd like that. I'm actually doing that already with all these other service providers. I'd love to have that with you. I right. didn't even think that was an option. Right. Um, and and the, then the second thing is, is return on life. That is, are you making the life better for the employees 
and for the clients. If you're doing that, if your clients and your employees come back and say, you know what, this is actually really helping me. Right. Whatever the payment of that is, because it's so hard to find good people. Right. And it's so hard to find great clients as well. That's a huge return. That's, that's Absolutely. infinite. I mean, infinite right, return. If your employees um, enjoy what they do. Yep. If, if you work for terrible people and you have terrible culture, I don't care if you're the best at what you do or have some passion around what you do. You're not going to enjoy your work. Right. Right. Is technology going to be a silver bullet for that? Of course not. But can it help them take away their pain points? So one of the questions we ask in our client experience team is, is it hard to do business with us? In what ways is it hard to do business with us? Mm-hmm. I think we could ask the same thing on the employee side. What are we doing that is making your life miserable? And that may be a little extreme. Yeah, right? Right. But I'm sure they'll tell you. And then make it anonymous and they'll tell you everything. They will tell you. And you may say, you know what? That is something we can't answer or something we can't answer mm-hmm. or something we can't answer right now. And I think when you go to when we went to T3, mm-hmm. all I could think about was how many of those things will help us be able to spend our time differently. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a silver bullet again. But when I look at our advisors, can they spend their time differently so they're less inclined to be in the office and more inclined to be spending time with their clients or telling people about the value we provide? There's your ROI. Yeah, that right big there. time. I mean, they're doing they're deepening their relationships because technology's taking off a lot of that That's load. Right. All right, so I want to get into buy sell, but sure. before we go, I always ask the question that I I, I I try to ask everybody. Sitting in your seat, we're going to take out the famous crystal ball. All right, where is our what does our industry look like ten years from today? Well, I think it goes back a little bit to the State of the Union piece, which is the generational shift has for the most part happened. Mm-hmm. So our firms are now gonna be owned primarily by Gen Xers and Gen Y. Mm-hmm. That's gonna be an interesting dynamic, I think. Cause you know, Gen Xers, we're the, we're the skeptical group. Um, I didn't have internet until college. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with it, but we've clearly embraced technology. I think technology is going to be a huge part of the experience, both for our clients, but for our teams, I think you're probably going to have that location autonomy where you're, we're already serving clients in all over the country. Mm -hmm. But I think the ability for a client to say, I'm working for this company that's located here. I live over here and my advisor's over here. It means that we've opened up all sorts of opportunity to work with people everywhere. And there's been a lot of conversation around niche, finding your niche. I think it may be a better way to that is finding the fit you know, who fits with you? Mm-hmm. You're, I'm, I'm not the right advisor for everybody. And there's just some clients, we're just not going to fit well together. But finding those people who you do fit well and don't necessarily assign them a niche by what they do for a living, but kind of just who they are. There's a personality oftentimes that we really gravitate to. So I think that is where we're going to see a lot of um, advisors go. I also think that you're going to see big firms and you're going to see the platform advisor. Uh, so uh, you had um, you know the retirement answer man on most recently, mm-hmm. Roger. Yeah, that's a great example of a guy who says, "Look, I'm going to create a platform, and I'm going to work with the number of clients I want to work with, and I'm going to use technology and social media and the whole podcast world to." grow a business and get to a certain point and say, I'm very comfortable with this. It's a lifestyle practice. I've got a subscription model for the retirement club that I have, all those different pieces, right? So that's, I think that model will take off. And I think you're going to have the big conglomerates, all of that having to do with the generational shift and even the the lack of advisors in our generation. Yeah. And I, I talked about it uh, recently on a podcast and I said, you know, I, because a, a friend of mine who's in the industry asked, you know, do we have to grow? And I was like, is that, at first I was like, that's kind of a silly question, but it's actually not. You don't have to grow. You can be a lifestyle business, but if you want to grow, you better commit to that growth because Absolutely. if you don't, the middle is not going to be a good spot to be because it's just going to be an awkward spot. You either got to say, I'm good and comfortable at 50, 100 families and a lifestyle business. And if you're not, if you're not comfortable there, then you 
probably need to commit to growth because there's many firms out there that are growing. And the beauty of it is, is that, you know, firms like Brightworth and Capital and all those firms can live together. Absolutely. Because there's enough business and not everybody's right for us and not everybody's right for other firms. And we can all create this and this kind of conglomerate of companies Absolutely. that are working towards a mission of bettering the RA to provide better advice, deeper relationships with the, with firms. Going I actually forward. think that's what's going to happen. You think about the M&A side of our business, mm-hmm. it's been mostly A. Mm-hmm. It's just buyers and sellers. You have one generation that's selling to the next generation. They're trying to get capital out of their business and they're going to retire. And that's what you're seeing a lot of. I think over the next 10 years, more of the M mm-hmm. is going to come into play where two firms are going to say, we can do this better together than we can as competitors. Let's figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to see more of that take place. And, um, you know, you're going to also see, uh, you know, the growth of the professional service company, Mm-hmm. And we've seen that even in our own firm. We've hired a COO and a CFO and project management lead. And we've hired infrastructure for running a business, not a practice. Mm-hmm. And it's very different. And we'll continue to, to do that as we grow. It's business size in your business. That's I right. love it. We could sit here for another hour <laughs> easily. Uh, but I know you've got work and family. And so um, let's go into buy-sell. Buy-sell sure. is my cheesy game I like to make up, uh, kind of bridging the gap of financial advisors desire to investment manage and and technology. So what I'll do is I'll do four statements, buy or sell, buy meaning you agree, sell meaning you disagree, uh, and we'll see whether you're a bull or a bear. I didn't set it up anyway, right? I'm not positioning you to be one way or the other. Uh, So buy or sell, uh, and then once you take your stance, you can give a little bit of background on one. Buy or sell, high net worth financial advisory clients are open to a more digital experience with their financial advisory firm. Oh, buy, completely. Yeah, Yeah, I, I mean, I'm seeing that again I have uh, clients that are in their 80s that live in the suburbs of Las Vegas. We FaceTime meeting together. Mm -hmm. And we tried to initially set up a phone call. They said, can you FaceTime instead? (laughs) Yeah, of course we can. (laughs) So absolutely. All right. I'm 100% agreement there. Buy or sell the expectations for financial advisory firms in regards to services provided Mm -hmm. will extend beyond just investment management and financial planning over the next 10 years. Absolutely. I do believe that you will get to a point where we will be more advisors than financial advisors. Mm-hmm. And we will be seen as a hub of decision-making and resources and value-add for clients. Mm-hmm. And where it's becoming more of, as I talk to talk to people about, it's moving more up Maslow's hierarchy, right? Sure. To fulfillment. How can we help be more of a fulfillment advisor Absolutely. for these individuals and where money management helps them but that's not the core of what we're talking about. We're asking them how do they get to their needs and their wants and their desires that they have. Absolutely. And sometimes it's just even simple little things. So uh, I know we've all experienced this. Uh, A client sends you an email that clearly is not from that client. They've been hacked. Their email has been compromised and you have to now let them know. And they they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to handle it. And we were having this conversation in our firm the other day. It's like, how do we provide resources, a referral to someone who can help them. Hmm. We clearly don't want to get into the technology services business (laughs) and security services business, but maybe we should look at having a vetted partner that says, you know what, this person can help make sure that your technology personally is set up, Mm -hmm. ready to go, you're secure. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm sure there's all sorts of consequences to that, but that's an example. You know what they're going to do? They're going to talk about that. Right. Because you know what their biggest pain point is right there? Their email got hacked. And they're going to go tell their friend, my email got hacked. And then you know what the next comment is? My financial advisor actually helped me solve everything for that. And that may be a little pie in the sky. But you know what? Those are the kind of things where if we're thinking about what's impacting our clients and what their needs are, and we can help them in some small ways, they'll remember that. I I love that. that. I mean, that's an amazing example that... It may be pie in the sky, but we better start thinking pie in the sky or That's someone right. else is going to come in and try it. That's right. Uh, buy or sell, average margins for financial advisor firms will be lower in five years than they are today. This isn't a fun one. Yeah, I, I'm going to sell that. And I'm okay. going to take any market commentary off the table Fair. there. Uh, but we have a shortage of advisors. And we've seen that. I think, uh, I don't know what the stat was exactly, but I believe it was over 50% of the CFPs are over 50. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's 50, 55 that. or something like that. And actually. 
And so we have a shortage of advisors. We have technology that will continue to, I think, handle a lot of middle market in many cases. And you have this idea of fee compression that everyone's talking about. So that's really at what is what the heart mm-hmm. of that question. Um, I don't see our fees going down for the work that we do. Mm-hmm. There will be some that do. There will be some that have to, and there'll be some who take that bait and they you know, lower their fees because their value proposition is in their investment solution. Mm-hmm. And when someone else can do it for 15 basis points, that's a hard sell. But I believe that the true profession of financial planning and advising people, what we've been talking about this entire time, I don't think that that hurts our margins. Do you worry though that the margins on the down on the bottom, because we're going to have to be providing more services to them, like uh, paying for this the servicing of them getting hacked, right? Sure. Does the expense side of the PL balloon to where maybe you have to figure out how to manage that more effectively? To keep those margins? Possibly. This is where hopefully technology can allow you to manage that bottom line. And the, you know, I hate to use the word low value work, right. but the idea of taking low value work off of people and putting it through technology and doing it better, mm-hmm. I think this is where you can to make sure that your margins are good. I'm biased, but I agree. <laughs> uh, buy or sell, last one. Robo solutions are a good option to utilize within a financial advisory firm to help scale their business. I'm gonna say that's a long-term buy. Long-term buy, okay. And the reason I say that is I would put us in the camp of a group that says, if we were to try to put a robo together, we would no, have no idea how to do that. Mm-hmm. Our value proposition is such where we don't know how to provide that service in a profitable way. Hmm. Because I think you could get into a point where you actually over-service your clients for that solution. Um, but I do believe it could end up being one of the investment options that firms have that they utilize, but for many firms, they're gonna probably need to go buy a business that knows how to do that. Yeah, I think you're right, because I think that what what advisory firms struggle with is how to keep their brand they've built and deliver a volume-based solution. Right. And that's tough. And whether it's utilizing like the SIPs of the world or the betterments of the world or whatever it may be, but you still have to have someone run that division. And how do you balance the act of volume with this high level of brand and maybe other technologies can help with that, but that is a tough option. Um, so you were, uh, you were a bull, you were a bull. I'm a bull. There you go. Um, I'm, I'm a buyer in a financial practice. <laughs> I better be a bull. <laughs> That's fair. Um, so to wrap things up, I'd love to hear your closing thoughts. I'll give a closing thought, but what is, what do you think, you know, take 90 seconds or so. What's one thing that an advisor that's listening to the show or financial professional that's in the industry listening to the show can take back to their practice, to their firm, the way they do business to really tomorrow take a step ahead in innovation? What's something they can implement and start doing? Well, I don't know if it actually answers the question regarding innovation, but um, I think we already touched on it by asking the client, what will be the most useful thing for you today? What do you want? How can I help you? and spending the time answering that question and making sure that they understand that you heard them and that you're wanting to participate in that conversation. That is such a simple thing, but it takes a mindset change. We have to get out of the show and tell version of our Mm -hmm. business. I have this great analysis to show you and I'm gonna go through a a plan and I'm gonna almost put together a legal case step-by-step to a conclusion. And you know, the angels will sing and you'll get it. <laughs> Instead of that, coming at it and saying, what's going to be the most important thing for us to address today? And letting them know, look, I have an agenda too. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But that is such a simple thing. Um, I will add one more, and that is focus on your culture. Mm-hmm. Unless you're going to be a one advisor practice, focusing on making your culture as strong as it can be. Because as I think about the future, these companies are going to continue to grow. And more and more are going to kind of become the bigger bigger firms. Your culture is so important because it will rub off on the work that your employees do. And it'll rub off on your clients. And I think from an innovative standpoint, we want to innovate with culture. We want to be so dramatically different than the norm from that standpoint that other firms want to work with us. Mm. Other firms want part of that. And clients will see that, they'll feel that, and that's something that is not an overnight fix. But if you're part of a firm that has more than one person in it, a focus on 
creating that culture and the structure around it that reinforces it, I think is so important. Couldn't agree more. And that idea of, um, you know, that's the simplest thing that someone could take is just go ask your clients, what do they want? That doesn't mean, like you said, doesn't mean don't be prepared. Just ask them what they want. Um, and, and the idea of culture is something that I think firms try to do too quickly and they don't put enough thought into because we all are still in an instant gratification world. Culture takes time and it starts from the top and people are going to look at you first. And so uh, y'all have done that in a great way. And if anybody wants to know how to build a culture, <laughs> look at what y'all have done there because right? I agree 100% there. Uh, the other day I was talking with a leader of, at a multi-billion dollar RA about their growth and some of their challenges. And the one challenge that stuck with me is that many firms deal with day in and day out. It's the idea of delegation and time management. The particular example was around some tasks associated with uh, compliance and reporting data aggregation aspect. The processes were antiquated, but the individual knew how to do them and was able to do them quickly. The idea of teaching someone else the task, which was identified as menial and mundane, seemed more overwhelming than efficient. And it was easier to just complete the task. As one individual put it, it took me 20 years to learn this. They won't be able to learn it quick enough. As firms continue to grow and the need to scale our time and our teams becomes more pressing, we as leaders will continue to be faced with this same challenge. But the opportunity to this specific example is the opportunity to not offload the menial task and have someone else do it, but rather to empower a younger employee. Yes, we need to provide direction and accountability for the task to continue to get done. But we now have the ability to empower them with the ability to think strategically and innovatively on whether the way the process is being done currently is the best way or not. Remember, we have been doing the same processes for a long time, some of them 20 plus years. The way we currently do it is comfortable and perceived, quote, right because of how long we have done them. But this doesn't mean they are the most efficient or best way. A new mindset, a fresh look, and maybe even a more naive insight may spur greater innovation. And too often we look to new technologies to provide innovation, albeit there are some extremely innovative technologies out there. We all have an opportunity to look even simpler to spur innovation. It's right in front of us and doesn't cost a thing. It's our current processes. The Charlie Jordan and Brightworth, thanks for joining us on this Always podcast. It was a lot of fun. Thank lot you fun. very much. And to all the listeners out there, thank you all for joining us and uh, keep an eye out and we'll be back in your ear next week. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 